You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning. My name is Nicole, and I'm with the House uh, Community Group. And today we're going to be reading from Jonah chapter 1, verse 7 through 17. It says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you? that the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, They called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Um, It is a joy of mine to be here. Uh, My name is Garrett Price, for those that do not know me, which is a majority of you. Um, I'm the youth pastor and young adults pastor at Taylor Memorial over in Hobbs, New Mexico. So we made the fun trip over here. It's so an hour and a half away, but um, it was a fun trip of West Texas driving. But yeah, it's, uh, it's good to be here. Our church has been praying for you guys for... I don't know how long, for many years now, I guess, at this point. Um, Tanner nodded his head, so I'm going with that. Um, but we, it's a joy of mine to be here. I've never got the chance to be here on a Sunday morning, and now it's a privilege to be able to get here and to uh, open the Word of God with you. So I thank you for that. Thank you, Tanner, for allowing me to be here. So uh, we will be looking at the book of Jonah this morning. Um, so if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open there. We are in the ESV translation. Uh, already made myself laugh. All right. Uh, We will be in chapter one. I know Tanner started this book last week. Um, So if you want to go ahead and open there, uh, that is where we will be this morning. Uh, Honestly, Jonah has always been one of my favorite stories Uh, ever since I heard it. um, It's it's fascinated me. Uh, Tanner mentioned last week in his sermon that um, if you like to know the history, or he, he likes to know the history of things, that Tanner's a real history person, which I would have never said about Tanner, but We'll say that, Um, but I'm a big movie person, drastically different, so because of that, um, I often let my mind run, and I like to imagine, like, the different scenes of the Bible, and Jonah makes that really fun, right? If you know the story of Jonah, your imagination can run pretty wild, Um, but it's it's a really cool book to look at, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. Tanner also pointed out that the book of Jonah, well, the story of Jonah, uh, that a lot of people know it, right? Whether you were raised in church or not, you, you know the whole especially verse 117, right? He was swallowed by a fish and he was in there for three days. Um, So it's a pretty common, 
uh, common story to know. Uh, but there is such, like Tanner mentioned last week, there is such good truth of who God is, the reality of our sin, and where it leaves us in this story, right? It's more than just a fish. It's more than just a pouting prophet. There, there's so much good in this story, as in all of Scripture. So my, my prayer this morning as we dive into the story that we probably all know um, is that we hear it as we've never heard it before, right? That, that we open our ears to this story um, and we, we open our hearts to what God may be saying to us this morning. Um, I'll try to make it as clear as I can. There's just three simple points that I think are very obvious in, uh, in this story. So I, I pray that that be our, where our hearts lay and our, our minds lay this morning. But before we jump in, I always pray before I preach because we're only here for the Lord. So let's, let's pray with me real quick. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the chance to gather and to worship your name. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to learn from it. Allow us to never take these chances for granted. Uh, be with our time this morning. Help us understand and grow in our knowledge of you. Be honored and glorified in everything that is said and sung this morning. We love you and we do trust you. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So again, uh, we will be in Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 7. But in order to uh, understand our verses uh, this morning, we kind of have to know what's going on, right? Tanner started verses 1 through 6 last week, so just a, a short recap um, to understand where we are. We know that God has called his prophet Jonah to go and to reach the people of Nineveh. Um, Jonah apparently did not like this calling. Like Tanner mentioned last week, it wasn't an easy calling. It was a pretty hard calling, um, and he, he runs from it, or he attempts to run from the Lord's presence, right? He gets on the ship. He's trying to leave, but pretty quickly, his little getaway trip does not go as planned, right? Um, it doesn't go well uh, as the Lord throws wind into the sea and a great storm arises, uh, threatening the lives of everyone on the boat. Like, cause, again, I'm going to stop quoting Tanner after this, but um, he said it wasn't just like your average like thunderstorm, your average rainstorm, right? This was a storm that threatened their lives, right? Um, if you've ever been in the middle of a sea in a storm, I'm glad you made it out. But, right, um, this is a scary storm. The sailors begin to panic. Uh, we see in verse 5 that they throw everything off the boat, right? They're trying to lighten the load of the boat so they can survive. And then they begin to pray to all of their gods, right? Little g gods, it's an interesting note in verse 5. We'll see that in a second, um, for help, right? Then they wake Jonah up and say, pray to your God. And that is right where we pick up this morning. Right in the middle of the storm, the ship's in danger. The sailors are doing all that they can to save themselves. Um, we're going to walk our, We're going to walk through this verse by verse, and at the end we'll apply it to ourselves. So read with me. Like I know we just read it, but let's read it again. Verses 1 through 13. Seven, for chapter 1, 7 through 13. The word of God says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, so that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Verse 11, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, for that, so that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temperate. Scary. This is what I get for changing translations. Um, anyways. Um, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men uh, rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempest scary uh, against them. All right, that's what I do with our students. If we can't read a word, we make up a word that makes sense. So, 
this is where we are, right? Again, we're in the middle of the storm. They're trying to figure out how to survive. Um, and like Tanner said last week, it's not a mediocre rain. It's a massive, sto- a massive storm that threatened their lives. So we see in verse 7 that they decide to cast lots to figure out who's to blame, right? And I'm going to assume here that there has to be some divine intervention from the Lord to, to, to do this, mainly because the whole point of casting lots, which we'll talk about in a second. Because I don't know about you, but I'm never in a storm, and I'm just like looking around like, all right, whose fault is this, right? I don't know why that was their conclusion, like, who messed up? Um, but uh, nonetheless, they, they cast lots, right? This, this, method, myth, this method was often used during this time, right? This word lot indicates that they were stones or pebbles that were painted or colored, uh, those gathered would throw them, like they like, kind of like roll dice, essentially, is what we would do today. Uh, but if two dark sides landed up, the interpretation was, no, you're, you're innocent. If two light sides landed, it meant you're guilty, <laughs> um, or you, or would, depending on what they were being used for. But the bigger part, part of all this is that this method was oftentimes used to discern the will of God, right? They, that they trusted that God was in control and that he wouldn't, like, handle the decision that was made. Like, it didn't just randomly happen to fall on Jonah, right? The, the Lord of the will showed that it was Jonah, right? We see this done in the New Testament. We see it in Acts 1 when they choose Matthias as a disciple to replace Judas. We also see it in Joshua, 1 Samuel, and other places. I really love this verse in Proverbs 16. It says, the, lat is, the lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is from the Lord, right? It's just, again, reiterating, right? Like, yes, you are the one throwing the rock, but the decision that is made is from the Lord. So this, this scene is getting more intense. They cast lots. It singles out Jonah. All eyes turn to him, right? Because as soon as you know the guilty party, clearly you all like turn to him like, what have you done? And that's what they do later. But my immediate reaction is, I want to know what Jonah's reaction is, right? Because as Tanner mentioned last week, Jonah is a servant of the Lord, right? This isn't his first time dealing with God, right? He, he's a Hebrew man. He knows the stories of the Lord. He's dealt with the Lord before. So surely he had some inclination instead of like, I'm in trouble, right? Because if I'm in Jonah, I'm throwing that rock off the boat, and I'm not catching blame for that, right? Like, I'm, I'm not letting it become obvious that it's me, but he doesn't, and it's become clear that Jonah is at fault. So we see the sailors become pretty cautious of Jonah, and they begin to question him in verse 8, right? They ask, uh, they ask again who's to blame, what, what his business is, where he's from, what country he's from, what people he's from. And these questions seem somewhat random at first, uh, but we must remember that they know nothing about Jonah, right? Jonah just bought a ticket to a boat when he got on the boat, right? They don't, they don't know much about him. Um, and that, so essentially, they're basically trying to figure out, right, the summation of their, their questions, they're trying to figure out how much trouble are they in based on who Jonah is, right? They're basically questioning what person or God did you make angry, right? Uh, they're trying to figure out what is all going on. A commentator explains their questions in this way. He says, tell us because it is on your account that this calamity is ours, right? So essentially it is saying, tell us, who have you made angry because this disaster you've caused is now affecting us, right? Um, this is, again, this is what they're asking him. So they wanted answers and they wanted them quickly. So we get to verse 9, and interesting enough, this is where Jonah speaks for the first time in the book, right? He, he tells them a simple yet pretty complex answer. He identifies himself as a Hebrew, a term that they would have understood as it was a common phrase to use for the Israelites. Um, he also told them that he uh, fears or worships the Lord, right, depending on what translation you read, but that word translates the same, that he fears, worships, um, and follows the Lord, the God of the heavens and the one who created the sea and the dry 
land. But it's really funny, there's some irony here. As Jonah says this, and he claims to worship and to fear the Lord, because he's only on this position because he's currently running from the Lord, right? Um, it's kind of ironic. But then he goes on to explain who God is, right, who God was, the God that he's claiming. And he's really trying to get them to understand how powerful this God is, right? Because we have to remember during this time, people that were not Hebrew, that were not of the Hebrew people, they worshipped many gods. Like there were hundreds of little G gods, like these fake gods. They were chasing after all these fake gods. So Jonah's getting pretty specific on who they're actually dealing with, right, the one true God. Right, and then he identifies Yahweh, right? A lot of translations say Yahweh, a lot say God, the Lord. It's all the same guy. Um, and as he identifies them as God of the heavens. So this term uh, quickly points again to the one true God, the supreme deity, the Alpha, the Omega, the I Am, the God of the universe, the one true God of the Bible, right? The one true God of the Hebrew faith. Uh, this, this phrase, God of heavens, um, history note, um, because this is what seminary taught me to do, um, becomes popular in post-exile writing. We see it a lot in Nehemiah and Ezra, uh, but we also see it once in Genesis 24. So this is, a very, this, is a, this is a common phrase to describe God of the universe, right? God of the heavens, uh, Lord of all. So then, if that wasn't enough for him, he says he's also the God that created the land and the seas, right? Not many people, only one person gets to claim that and rightfully claim that. Um, so now he identifies God as the Lord of creation, Right, the, again, pointing to the fact that they were dealing with the one true God, the creator of the world, and the one who very clearly controls all things. Right, it becomes very clear to them that God is the one that initiated the frightful storm, that, and it really shows how much trouble they're in, if you know any of the history of the Old Testament and all the things that God does. Right? Um, it's, they're in trouble. So then we move to verse 10. And the situation gets a little more intense here, right? It is clear now that God is in control. Uh, Jonah confesses to them that he's running from the Lord. Um, so the puzzle is like slowly being put together of like what is happening? Why are we in this trouble? Um, and then their question now becomes, what are we to do, right? What are we to do with you? <laughs> it's essentially the sailor's question, right? Because it's become clear that this frightful storm, this scary storm is divine judgment from God. Right, on Jonah's actions. The one true God is now punishing his rebellious prophet, and the sailors are now suffering the consequences. So their question basically is, what have you done, and how could you? Makes sense if you're in this situation, right? You've done nothing wrong, and now you're about to die in, in the sea. It makes sense. Um, they realize the great mistake that Jonah's made, and as they're sitting there, the situation's getting worse, um, the storm is getting worse. Um, they know Jonah's the issue, but they don't know how to fix it. And in, if you're in their mind, um, Jonah's probably, the, like, if, I, if I'm them, Jonah's the last person I'm asking for help, right? You put us in this situation, why would I ask you for help? But in reality, Jonah's the expert on how to talk to God here, right? Because these, these people, these sailors, these pagan sailors don't know Yahweh God, right? Does that make sense? Like, um, so Jonah's the expert on how to handle and to talk to Yahweh. So they logically ask Jonah what to do in verse 11. In verse 12, Jonah gives them the answer. It's a pretty strange one, right? My dad's thrown me off a boat a couple times, but I've never, like, told him to do so, right? Uh, I've never been like, hey, just throw me over and the sea will come. It's, it's kind of a random answer, but uh, it's because Jonah seemingly understands that he's being punished, right? If you put yourself in Jonah's spot, he, he understands that he has disobeyed, that he's living in sin, and all those things, and the storm is just, again, divine judgment, right? Um, and he, he thinks he knows his fate, 
But what's interesting is he never really repents right here, right? He never really, like, asks for forgiveness or anything like that. He just kind of accepts it and just says, you know what, throw me in the water and it'll all go well for you, right? Um, but really interesting note, and me and Tanner talked about this last week, right? Jonah does not see, and I think some people miss this, Jonah does not see the sea, see the sea, as the judge, right? He sees God as the judge using the sea, right? That's really important here, right? Again, just pointing to the fact that God is in control of all of this. So he tells them the solution. He throws them overboard. We move to verse 13, and the sailors apparently did not like this solution, right? Because if I'm them, I'm probably pretty quick. I'm like, okay, and like hoping for the best, right? But they, they don't, and we'll see why in verses 14 and 15. Um, but they, they go and attempt to row back to shore, right? So Jonah tells them, if you want this solved, row to the, uh, throw me over. And they're like, mm, let's try to get back to the shore. Let's row back to the shore. Um, and they, they know, cause, because mainly because they know what will happen to Jonah, right, if they throw him over. Logically, you're in a bad sea storm. You throw him in the water. Not so great thing is going to happen to Jonah. They know this. Uh, and they don't want to be part of that, as again, as we'll see in verse 14. So they try to row back. An interesting note here, and this was really interesting to me, a commentator notes this, um, that if they had any hope to row back to shore, it's probably because they were relatively close. Right? It's not like they were just like in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean somewhere. Right? Like they were relatively close to have any kind of hope, um, which is, again, that's just how I like to imagine things. Like they can see like for me to the door, like there it is, like let's try really hard, and it just goes poorly. Um, the word, maybe not that close, I don't know, I wasn't there. But um, that's not the point. The, the word row here literally translates to dig into the water. Like they were with all their might, like digging against this storm, trying to get back to the land, but they fail, right? They're, they're not going to overpower the storm, but more importantly, they're not going to overpower God, right? Because again, that's who's in control here. And what's interesting to me is that if they were that afraid of the storm, right, if they were that scared of the storm up to this point, saying like, this storm is going to kill us, this storm is going to end us, all those things, and Jonah claims that throwing him into the water would solve the issue, I myself am pretty quick, like, okay, like, throwing him, I'm throwing him over, right? Like, if I'm that scared. So why do they hesitate? Like, why do they try to solve it on their own? Because at this point, it's very fair to say that they feared God, they feared the Lord more than they feared the storm, right? And we see that in verse 14 and in the rest of our text. So let's read the rest, 14 through 17. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay on the and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Verse 17, And, jo- and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So we see a conclusion to our story here. Um, we see... We see here that the sailors realize, like maybe Jonah's right, they realize what they have to do, and they begin to ask for forgiveness. Right? They immediately say uh, a lot of things here. And what's really interesting, I mentioned this earlier, they begin to pray to the Lord now. Right? It, says, it says that. Right? They begin to pray to the Lord, capital L, Lord. Right? Um, it's really interesting because in verse 5, the first time that they're praying for help, they're praying to their like, fake gods. Right? They're, they're, they're little G gods. Um, they're praying to people that can't help them because they're not 
real. Uh, but here, uh, they, they are praying to the Lord, right? Capital L. They're praying to Yahweh. So clearly, they now understand somewhat what's going on and now fear the Lord more than they fear the storm. Right? We see them pray, oh, Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Um, this is showing some respect for God's power, right? They understand relatively what's going on, and they fear his vengeance. Uh, again, they may not have understood God fully, but at least partially. Uh, they feared retribution for what they were about to do, because, again, they understand, like, throwing Jonah over is going to cause one thing. Um, hopefully save them, but it's definitely not going to be good for Jonah, right? They, they know this. They know that taking a man's life, especially one that seems innocent to them, was a serious thing to do and had consequences involved, especially when that one person served Yahweh, right? History does not tend well for those that torment the people that go against Yahweh, right? Um, and then they, they go on to say, do not charge us for an innocent man's blood, right? This sounds kind of confusing because they, Jonah's already admitted, like, hey, I'm running from the Lord. But in their eyes, um, he has not wronged them, right? Um, they, they claim that he's innocent before them. They had no reason to judge Jonah, so the intent of this prayer, though, is very clear. And it's essentially, they did not want to be held accountable for what was about to happen, right? They, that God's power was on display, and they wanted absolutely no part and no punishment for what they were about to do to Jonah, right? That, like, so their prayer is a little selfish, just a little bit, actually a lot of it. But uh, they, they finished their prayer by saying, it's a really interesting phrase, for, O Lord, or, uh, it says, Oh, Lord, have d you have done as it pleased you. So, again, they're pointing to the fact that God is sovereign. God is in power and in control, and it allows him to do as he pleases, right, either in judgment and or in grace, right? Again, they are no longer fear the storm. They fear God. They believe they were carrying out God's will. They understand that God is powerful, but also shows that they understand that an act of God is being done, right? So, again, their minds are, like, slowly starting to grasp that they are obviously not in control, that the Lord has done, and the Lord is doing as he pleases, right? He is divinely punishing his prophet. So in verse 15, we see that they do what they were told, right? They do what Jonah told them to do. This word picked up, right? They hurled him in, literally translated means they picked him up and threw him in, right? It wasn't just like they like forced him like on the plank or whatever you want to imagine, right? Like they literally picked him up and threw him in. It's the same verse for, the same verb from verse 12. Um, Jonah is off the boat, and it works, right? The storm settles, right? The sailor's prayer is answered. Yahweh delivers them. Uh, this, again, like I said, I love to imagine things. Like, this had to be the craziest scene to, like, witness, to be a part of, right? Different types of fear going on here and all of these things. They throw a man off the boat. Like, what a story to go tell at the dinner table when they got to whatever they were going, right? Um, <laughs> uh, but when we look at verse 16... Uh, we see that this fear of the Lord that the sailors now have be put into action. Right? Commentators believe that this is more than likely a scene change here, um, that they probably performed that these, these sacrifices and these vows later, like when they got back to shore, mainly because we see in verse 5 they have no cargo, like they threw it off the boat, so like what would they sacrifice? We don't know. But w whether they were on earth, earth, they were on earth, whether they were on <laughs> land or sea, uh, it doesn't change the point, right? They... Uh, these pagan sailors that did not know Yahweh at this point feared Yahweh at this point, right? Didn't understand him fully, didn't understand who he was and all those things, but at least feared him. Uh, so what did that look like? Well, we see what they witnessed left them in complete awe and fear. This fear, this word fear here, 
is the same throughout the whole story. In verse 5, verse 9, verse 10, and now here in verse 16. What started as a general fear in verse 5, right, general fear of the storm, grew in an intense fear in verse 10, and that fear matured into the fear that is the reverent worship of the Lord in verse 16, right? Like it's drastically getting worse, right? They feared the storm, and then now they ended with fearing God because they understood that he was in control here. We see that the sacrifices and vows are the same response that everyone should have when you, when you recognize and you're in awe and fear of the Lord, right? Um, thankfully, we don't have to, like, sacrifice, like, animals right here anymore. That would be kind of weird. Um, but, like, we still sacrifice and we vow to the Lord, right? Just, it's the same response when we understand that. A commentator puts it like this. He says, a clear difference here is that their, their fear of their lives had now turned into submissive awe, which is then manifested into some degree of repentance, right? Um, because we also know... Uh, which, is, which is then shown in the sacrifices and the vows. Because another commentator points, and I really like this, this note, because uh, we immediately start to think, well, are they saved now? Like, are they like devoted Hebrews? A commentator points out that the whole book as a whole, like context of the book, does not point to the fact that they converted to monotheistic Yahwehism. I felt so cool typing that. Um, right? they, they didn't, like, essentially, they just added Yahweh to their list of gods to worship, Right? Um, they didn't, like, leave everyone. They just kind of added Yahweh. So it's not true, 100% dived in faith. But So we move on to verse 17. And again, this is the verse that everybody knows, right? If you know the story of Jonah, you know this verse, right? We, Jonah is saved from the water, saved from death, but by a fish, right? Uh, how this looked, I don't know. It's really fun to imagine. It's really fun to picture. I don't know. But the Lord provides a fish. Everyone thought Jonah would die if they threw him over. But God, like I said, points a fish to go and to swallow him, uh, and he stays alive, and that's where we get the rest of the book. Uh, God's sovereignty is once again on display. Now, now the text does not give, I think some people get in trouble here, right? Some, uh, not that, some people get in trouble. The text does not give an incredible amount of details of what kind of fish um, or how, like, he would survive inside. We like to picture that or whatever, but the point is, if God can throw wind, control the sea, and do all the other things that God has done up to this point, this is certainly not out of his reach, right? Um, so the word fish here actually translates into the word Hebrew, in Hebrew, meaning aquatic creature or huge fish, right? So this is why a lot of people assume or say whale. So it's at least not Nemo, like that note Jonah's living in, right? It's a bigger fish. Um, this word appointed or provided, uh, depending on your translation, that means to have ordained or directed, right? The same word is used, and you'll see this as y'all continue your walk through Jonah. Um, used four times in the book of Jonah, all pointing to God in control, all pointing to the sovereignty of God and the power of his will being done, right? We see it here in chapter 1, verse 17. He appoints a fish. Uh, chapter 4, verse 6, he appoints a plant to cover Jonah, gives Jonah shade. Jonah complains about the shade. Verse 7 in chapter 4, he appoints a worm to eat the the leaf. Uh, and then verse 8, he appoints more wind, right? Um, God is, again, clearly in control. And like Tanner said last week, the whole story of Jonah is essentially God's sovereignty, right? That God's in control, that he, he can do as he pleases, and all of those things. So our passage finishes um, with saying that Jonah was in there for three days and three nights. There have been many debates on whether it was, whether it was actually three days or three nights, and if it was, why that long? We can talk about the many different beliefs later if you just want to because they've been argued for hundreds of years. Um, but it doesn't change the, the difference, right? It doesn't change the point. So there's a lot of different beliefs about this. 
but a commentator says like this. He states, the, fr- the phrase three days may have different connotations from the Old Testament, right? It connects to a lot in the Old Testament and other de- writings, but there is no compelling evidence to disbelieve the literal time span. Jonah was more than likely in the fish in actual three days and in actual three nights. This same writer goes on to say, the major point is that God, through a fish, could sustain the pouting prophet during crazy circumstances and then replace him, as you'll see in chapter 2, return him to the place where he could renew his commission to serve. Right? God, again, is in control. He used the fish as an act of grace to save Jonah from death. And another commentator, this is a really cool example here, he says, uh, the wording here suggests all the more strongly that a fish represented actual divine rescue. The fish was an act of grace. Same commentator says, here's a modern example, because, it's, again, it's hard to picture a fish swallowing a person. Um, this is a modern example. He says, imagine an avalanche buried a climber under several feet of snow. Rescuers dig him out alive. Then one rescuer states, he is lucky to be alive. We thought he was six feet under. The phrase, six feet under, can have its literal sense that he was six feet under snow, but can also, as in in Jonah, be a cliche for dead and buried. Right? So uh, more, it's more than likely a literal three days, but it definitely has connections pointing to the fact that God shows him grace and rescues him from his fate, which is, was death. Right? And then not to mention Jonah being in the fish for his length of time is a very clear connection and metaphor and foreshadow, not metaphor, foreshadow, uh, of Jesus in the tomb, which is what we'll talk about right now. So, <laughs> um, so I know that's a lot of information. Uh, Jonah's a really interesting story. Um, a, a lot of stuff goes down in the book of Jonah, and again, I hope you enjoy the walk through Jonah. But again, there's, I think there's three major things for us to take away, because you could be asking the question of, Garrett, why do I care about some dude that was swallowed in a sea a long time ago? Well, there's three major things on display here. The first one is that God is clearly sovereign over all, and all being all, because our students like to question, does all include, and then names like 20 different things, all means all, right, he is the one true God, God, God's power is on display the entire time, he controls the weather, he controls the sea, he controls a fish, he controls all, everything, right, his power over things, uh, and he can again do as he pleases, his sovereignty also includes, as Tanner mentioned last week, his calling of people, Right? God, God does not have to use us for his work, but he chooses to use us for his work. So we are all called, if we profess the name of Yahweh, the profess the name of God, the profess the name of Jesus, we are all called to live on our life on mission, right? Because we know this is not our home, and we are called to do that, right? He, so God can call anyone and everyone to do that, even Jonah. The bigger thing that's on display here is that he even has power and control over sin and death, right? He could have judged Jonah on the spot. In verse 3, as soon as Jonah was like, I'm out, and like ran away, he could have judged Jonah, but he didn't. All right? he, he could have let the sailors su- suffer the consequences, but he didn't. He could have let Jonah die at sea, but he didn't. Right? The Lord is rich of mercy and grace, and, he, uh, and this is true in his character and all of those things. He is truly sovereign over all things. The God of the Bible, the creator of all things the good, good father, the king of kings, whatever else you want to give him, the one that's slow to anger, everything else you want to give him that's right, let me say it that way, (laughs) and is full of grace, and the one that is full of grace and mercy is the one true God, and he has all power and in control of all things, right? One of my favorite lines from any song that I listen to is, you have no rival and you have no equal, right? That is a 
absolute truth of who God is, right? The, the God of the Bible, the God that we confess in. So the second point, second thing going on here, is it's something that our culture does not like to hear very much, but it's very clear in our text. And it's the simple fact that there are consequences for our sin, right? We, we see Jonah suffering all of this because of his disobedience, right? Because of his sin. Yes, it is true that the Lord is full of mercy and his grace. That's why you don't die as soon as you sin, right? <laughs> um, but there are still consequences. Just as my wonderful parents showed me mercy and love when I would get in trouble, I still had consequences, right? It's, it's the same reaction, right? But, and they didn't do it because they could, because they were my authority, or well, maybe my dad. I don't know. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, right? He did it out of my own good. They did it out of my own good and my own growth, right? So again, God does not allow consequences to happen simply to annoy us or just because he can, but he's doing it in order so that we may grow closer to him and that our hearts may be sanctified, right? So the next time you find yourself in a tough situation, ask yourself, what is God trying to show me? What is God doing in my heart? And even more, what should I repent of? Right? What sin am I hiding that I should repent of? And I, and I don't mean like basic things that like, because I, I think some people like over exaggerate and say like everything that goes wrong is like consequences or whatever, like just because I stubbed my toe walking on the stage. I'm not talking about that, right? Um, I'm, I'm meaning serious things, things that affect your heart, things that can grow you closer to the Lord, those type of things, right? Um, there, there's another reality of our consequences, though, right? There are immediate or earthly consequences, but Scripture is incredibly clear that there are also eternal consequences for our, for our sin outside of Jesus, right? So if we sit outside of faith in Christ, we sit as an enemy of God, separated from God, and we await to be judged and condemned for our sin, right? But thankfully, God provides hope. Hence point number three. Point number three is simply Jesus, that there is hope in Jesus. We see Jonah trying to run from the Lord, living in disobedience, living in his sin. Uh, we see the sailors trying to run and escape the consequences of on their own in verse 13. The truth is here that we cannot run from the punishment of sin. We, we cannot, uh, outside of the work of Christ on the cross, we will face judgment and con condemnation for our sin. We deserve death and hell because of our sin, but Jesus, right? Another one of my favorite songs is Shane and Shane's, I just forgot the title, but God, right? It's, it's simply like, we deserve this, this, and this, but God stepped in, right? But Christ steps in. Jesus comes and he dies in our place. He, he pay, comes to pay for our sins. The Son of God, right? Jesus comes to earth, humbles himself into humanity, uh, lives a perfect life, and then he goes to, up on a cross to pay for the sins that he never committed, right? He stayed there for three days and three nights, and on that incredible Sunday morning, he's raised from the dead. He walks out of the grave alive and well, and that is where our hope has to lie, right? That is where we have to find our foundation. If uh, Christ, the really beautiful truth, Christ paid for our sins so that we did not have to. He fought and won the battle that we had no chance to win. Um, if we believe in our hearts and confess in our mouths that Christ is king, we put our faith in him, we are made holy and righteous, right? All these beautiful truths about what it means to come to faith in Christ, right? We are forgiven of our sins. We are made right in the eyes of God, right? So how, do, how does Jesus and Jonah connect? That doesn't really make sense. Well, Jesus is simply the better Jonah, 
right? He is the greater Jonah. Jonah is called to go and to lead Nineveh, a people to redemption. Uh, he, he runs from his calling and he suffers the consequences. Jesus is given the task to go and suffer the wrath of God on a cross and to pay for the sins of the entire world, and he goes in headstrong, right? There's a passage in Matthew 12 that Tanner mentioned last week that connects Jesus and Jonah. Um, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and they are asking for a sign to prove that he's the Messiah, and his words are that there will be no other sign other than the prophet of Jonah, right? Jesus says, just as Jonah was in the fish for three days, the Son of Man will be in the grave for three days, right? He connects to this metaphor seen in Jonah, or this foreshadow scene in Jonah, he, he predicts his own death, right? He knows what he came to earth to do, right? He didn't, he didn't live 30 years on earth, and God was like, hey, this is what you're supposed to do. And he was like, dang it, right? And he, he knew what he was called to do, right? He, and he knew his goal and his achievement, and he does it, does it perfectly. He, he, allows, he also knows that just as Jonah was freed from the fish after three days, the Son of Man would walk out of the tomb after three days. That this is all a sign that someone and something better than Jonah is here, and that is simply Christ. Right? He is the solution to our sin problem. He is our Savior. We cannot solve our sin problem, and we certainly cannot run from our sin problem. But Jesus steps in, accomplishes it for us. In Christ, we are set free from sin, and we have a new life in him. So ask yourself this morning, and I'm, I'm done. Do, ask yourself, do I trust in this truth? Right? Do I trust in the fact that Christ is king? of all and pay for my sins, that, he, that this is the only reason we have hope, because outside of Christ, we await judgment and separation from God. In Christ, you are seen as holy and righteous child of his. So again, as we come to an end, my challenge to everyone this morning is to simply be real with yourself, because if we're good at anything as a human race, it is simply lying. <laughs> it is simply lying to ourselves and lying to other people, right? So be real with yourself. Ask yourself this series of questions. Right? Are, are you living your life resting in the truth that God is sovereign, that he is in control and can be trusted? Are, are you try, or, or are you trying to play the role of God on your own? Because right? that's where we get ourselves in trouble is when we try to play this role of God that we have no right to, to try to do. Right? Do you trust in that the fact that the Lord is sovereign and in control? Do you take consequences of your sin to the heart and know that it is for your own good because there's sometimes we can recognize a consequence and pout like a little teenager like I used to do when my parents would like give me consequences right so are you taking that to heart and knowing it's for your own good are you are you trying to run from your sin are you trying to hide sin because again I said I was done quoting Tanner but I guess I'm not as Tanner said last week right sin will be revealed right like sin will become aware right so are you hiding any sin are you trying to atone for sin on your own because it's going to go really poorly, so I hope not. And lastly, and again, this is where everything is founded, everything, every hope in this. Do you believe that there is hope in Christ? Right? Christ is our Savior, and he's our living hope. Do you trust in him? So uh, my challenge is to let us all trust in that fact, that God is in control, very obviously seen in Jonah, that he loves us and he sanctifies us, clear in Jonah, and that Christ is our living hope, and our only answer for all areas of life. And only you can answer those questions. I can't do that. Tanner can't do that. Um, and no one but you can answer those questions. Be real with yourself. Ask the Lord in, to reveal in your life areas that you struggle. And let us all live honoring and glorifying lives for the Lord, doing it all in Christ's name. Because without Christ, we are simply lost at sea in a storm that we cannot get ourselves out of, just waiting to be judged. Let's pray.